Hola, pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew. Good morning, Tom and Dennis. How you doing? Drew. Well, thank you very much for asking. Doing quite well down here. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I finally got the ashes washed off of my forehead. I think we can tell our listeners that we are now in Lent and Ash Wednesday was two days ago. Were you guys able to uh, get to an Ash Wednesday service or do something about that? I was there at the 9 a.m. Mass and it was a pre-COVID type of crowd. It was, I think, as always a pretty full of a lot of folks returning. And interestingly enough, with all the people there, when it came time for communion also, I would say significantly the majority of people also received communion, which is which was very good. It was nice to see. So, yes, but here we are in Lent. Yeah, I was derelict. I was not on the schedule. And so I did not. It's first time in a long time, because usually in my past life, when I was in the prison, I'd spent the whole day running around the institution giving ashes. That's all I did. And I came home looking like I was a chimney sweep, you know, because half the time I'd be given to a CO out in the yard and, you know, it'd be blowing back on you and have these all little speckles everywhere. So, but yesterday, no, I was, it was a break in tradition. I did not have to, uh, of course, Ash Wednesday is not a holy day. Ash Wednesday is optional, which you would never know. Like Tom says, it's always full of people. People, we don't even come to church on Sunday. Like, I'm here for ashes. It's like, okay. We, we had a ton of people. I actually conducted the middle afternoon service, and it was a, uh, an Ash Wednesday service. It was not a mass. So it was me, and I drafted a couple of people to help me with the ashes. And uh, again, we were full, too. And I finally got my thumb clean today. Yeah. I mean, I've been washing it since then. I want our listeners to know I do wash my hands quite regularly, but it took a while to get the ashes off. Oh, it always does. It always does. It's like a, it's a day, it's a couple showers or whatever, hand washing to get. So, so let me ask you this, because people are always asking me, and I'm sure they're asking you, do you prefer to give up something or do you prefer to do something or do you do both? And do, what do you think is, is maybe more helpful during Lent? Sometimes it's almost like a New Year's resolution. You know, you can get in maybe for the first couple of days, but then it becomes difficult, but yeah, I'll start. Like, I, yeah, I, I've been trying to do some more spiritual reading. As I, I write a, a blog, as you, you may know, and what I started doing, uh, I don't know, maybe six months ago, was putting in some resources, reflection, places where they can go either find a YouTube or a book or, and stuff. Because I just find so few people will have a knowledge of, like, where can I find some good reading? So I, I try to put that in there. What I went into, I was going through some books and found some old books. Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, the practice of the presence of God. And in it, he makes this claim. It says, we cannot find God in others. It is the God in us that finds the God in others. And it really struck me because, you know, Bill always comes in and says, you know, let me see if I can find the God in others when you're conscious, right? But you have to be aware of that indwelling in us to be able to recognize moving along. So that's what you know, I- interesting about that is that's the that whole Hindu practice of the namaste you know okay hold their hands and they say namaste and namaste means the god in me greets the god in you correct yeah so it's interesting that you've got this french monk from the 1500s on the other side of the world is coming (laughs) the same kind of thing 
advanced. Yeah. Advanced. Uh, yeah. I, I love that book. That's probably the largest part of my spirituality is the practice of the presence of God because you can do it all the time. Well, isn't that the challenge is yeah. you think you can, and then you get hooked up with a little something and it goes away. And of course he talks about that very idea of this mm -hmm. is, yeah, you're finding that one truth and you're focusing, focusing in on that, that pearl of great value, right? You're right. Trying to, to live in the world, but. Well, like, it's like you said, out. you become conscious for a minute while you're doing it. And then, you know, your attention gets stolen by, and sometimes, you know, stuff you got to do. I mean, it's not like anything to be ashamed of. But then I don't worry about that because I figure, well, anyone's got a secret for that. I haven't found that book yet, but you just, you can come back then to practicing the presence of God. So then that's kind of what Lent is all about in a way, isn't it? It's to remind ourselves on a daily basis that we are to be with God and God wants to be right. with us. One of the things I do whenever anyone asks me to pray, which is quite frequent, you know, you'll get together with people and if there's a grace to be said, it'll be, well, deacon. And of course, I make a joke about, hey, it's my day off. You know, you do it because <laughs> I'm trying to say to them, you know, it's legit if you do it, but if they want me to do it. Anyways, whenever I am in a position to lead some kind of prayer, the first thing I always say, and this goes back to Brother Lawrence and uh, the resurrection and the practice of the presence of God, the opening thing before we do anything is I say, okay, let's take a moment and remind ourselves that we're always in God's presence. He doesn't go away. We do. And then a moment of silence, and then we begin the prayer. But it's a wonderful, it's a very short book. It's an easy read. I think it's like five bucks on Amazon. It's, but it, I mean, I have, it has served me well. Yeah, served and again, me well. the whole idea is hundreds of years old, some wisdom. And, you know, we talk about the tradition of our church, our faith, the capital T part. You know, that's a major part of it. Like, why do you stay here? Because we've got some good stuff. It's There's all, gold in them in our hills. There you go. We lose it. I mean, even today, I was at Mass this morning and talking to one of the other priests, the visiting priest who comes on a regular basis, about, I think it's Richard Rohr, that Dance of the Flaming Chalice is why people forget why they're following a certain tradition. And we could say that about the Mass, you know? We're here, we go through the motions, but we really forget uh, what it's all about. And this person that was there, part of the conversation, recommended, hey, why don't you take a Sunday and go through the Mass and just talk through what's going on? You know, which is a practice in many places, but again, a good idea to go through. Well, they did that when the mass was first changed after the council. There was a commentator who would speak throughout the mass in the places I was at and explain changes and whatever to people. Now they just read the announcements maybe or something at mass. But yeah, I used to do that in the prisons. Every once in a while, we do a commentated mass because they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You no. Know, and I would link it to the 12 steps of NA and AA because almost all of them were addicted in prison. That's who's in prison, mental illness and addicted people. Yeah. So, but that made them, because again, you can say, well, let's remind ourselves, but some people don't know. Why do we say these words? Why do we, you know, so I would make a connection like, well, you know, to at an AA meeting, I have to stand up and my ticket in is to stand up and say, I'm Dennis, I'm an alcoholic publicly. And the same thing, you come in the church and you say, I'm a sinner in my <laughs> thoughts, in my words, what I've done, what I've However we do. can do it. Yeah. You know, I mean, like that's step one, like that is your ticket into this assembly. We are all sinners. But again, if you're just phoning it in, if you're just saying words, it doesn't register and it should register that you are publicly telling the world that you're a hot mess. So how are you judging other people? Why aren't you compassionate? I mean, you know, the whole thing flows if you spend a little time with it, but you got people got to be shown that. So, and you have to work. Excellent it. idea. Yeah. You have to you have to work it over and over again. 
repetition, you know, seeing, you know, the different ways we learn and acquire knowledge. And again, I think uh, we talk so much about being distracted. So when you're sitting in there, you have a body sometimes, but maybe the mind is miles away or uh, got the earphones in listening to something completely different. We're going to talk to somebody today who will maybe will help us to understand why that happens and how to make, how to do something better about it. Our guest today is Paula's father, Mark David Janis. I think he's going to have some things to say about what we should be doing in Lent because he has a new book out and we're going to talk about it. So today our guest is Father Mark David Janis. He's a Paulist father. He was ordained in 1979 and he is currently and has been since 2010 the president and publisher of Paulist Press, one of our premier Catholic publishers in the world. In addition to being a priest, he's a psychologist. He has practice and does practice and has taught at Michigan State, Ohio State, Indiana, and Purdue. He is on Facebook. He lives at the Mother House in New York, St. Paul the Apostle, and he's the author of several books, including the one that we're going to discuss today, which has just been published. It is entitled Mercy, Not Sacrifice, Linton Daily Reflections, a Paulist Press publication, and among other things, Father Mark David is known for his preaching and his homilies and, and a lot of other things. He's just a wonderful priest, and we are so blessed and lucky to have him with us today. Hello, Father Mark David. That's awesome kind of you. Thank you. So let's start off by talking a little bit about you, if that's okay with you. Sure. Tell us about your journey in, into the priesthood and into the Paulist Fathers. Why did you join the Paulist? Right. As I go back, as I think back, actually, it's hard to remember, to tell you the truth. You know, I joined in the early 70s. And at that juncture, of course, this was a time when priests had a major role to play in the civil rights movement. They had a very important part to play in the and the war movement. We had priests who were enormously important for my family. Uh, and, and my sister had polio for 14, 15 years, and they were very good to us. But I found the Paulus actually by accident, to be truthful, one of the people who taught and taught me in college had been a Paulist priest and one of the first ones to leave, really. And very early on, Bill Sullivan, Dr. Bill Sullivan, and just sort of came up to me and said, you'd be a good Paulist. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, the only Paulist I'd seen is for 10 minutes, Elwood Kaiser's, you know, an insight or something before the cartoons were on. <laughs> you know, I, mean, that's all, you know, I didn't know anything about them. And so he, over years, had sort of seeded me with documents from the Paulist fathers about how they were organized and what they were looking for and what they were looking, trying to do. And then, and the important part for me was really Paulus interested in working with people who weren't Catholic. And that was the intriguing piece to me. Wow. Like that I, you know, I hardly knew any Paulus at all. I didn't know any Paulus at all. Uh, Bill sent me to, to visit Park Street and then he sent me to visit 59th Street. He said, well, truth somewhere in the middle there. You'll have to find out for yourself. So in truth, as I think back on it, I don't, really remember why I joined. I remember why I stayed. I stayed because it made me happy. You know, at the end of the novitiate year, and then the second year, and then the third year, and then I finally realized I was happy with it. I think the uh, the only uh, dramatic vocation story I think I have is I was up in Alaska 
at one point. I was the world's worst seminarian, by the way. <laughs> Just absolutely the worst. And they sent me up to Alaska, to North Pole, Alaska, St. Nicholas, North Pole, Alaska, which was a double width mobile home. And, and the church was in the basement and the rectory here. The office, everything else was the upstairs part. And I was in charge of religious ed. And so we were doing Advent and Christmas in July because in, in Christmas in North Pole, it's too cold for anybody to go anywhere. And uh, I'm sitting there and we're cutting out things, you know, for religious education, right. and paper. And I'm sitting there and I'm at huge double windows, windows all over the place because you try to get whatever sun you can in the summer and I'm sitting there and I'm huffing and puffing and I'm saying, I'm the smartest person for a thousand miles. And here I am playing with paper dolls. And what am I doing? And I looked out the window and there were, oh, two, three, maybe four, five rainbows, different parts of five rainbows. Well, and I heard a voice, I heard a voice of the woman who used to take care of me when my mother was visiting, was with my sister in the hospital, that said, Marky, be a priest, don't be a priest. I don't care. You make the choice. Wow. And that's the only time. And Graham Warney was her name. God rest her soul. I would eventually go on to. And, and that's the only time anything like that's ever happened to me. And it wasn't the issue of, yes, you must do this or no, don't do this. It's a, you make the choice. And, and I think the, the mission of the Paulists, the, the men I had met who were Pauls were exciting. But I ultimately realized it was, I was happy being Paulist. I was happy even in, as a miserable seminarian. I was happy. The mission made me happy. And that was an important thing. And it was a few years later, I think I would look back in it would say that, you know, when I came to the policy, all of this Zim and VIP and energy, and I was, we were going to save America and God knows what we were going to do. You know, we were had all of these things going on and we were going to save the Paulists. And right. All of this is in addition while we were saving the church on the side. And in retrospect, I look back and I think about it and it's the Paulists, it, 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 that's how God saved me. That's how mm -hmm. God saved me. Right. You know, I hope I've good whatever things have happened along the while in my mission and what I've done. The important part, I think, is that the, the Paul's mission and the Paul's community ended up saving my little wretched soul. Wow. And, um, so I think that's, it's, it's not as, it's not Ignatius. Ignatius is of Loyola's vocation story. Right. <laughs> But, no, it, but it's a real life vocation. No cannonballs. Yeah, no cannonballs. No cannonballs. But it's a real life vocation story. And, yeah, and some of the spirits saved me. Yeah. Did did you receive your psychology training before or after you were a priest, became a priest? Well, I had started it actually beforehand and then stopped to enter seminary. And then after I had been a priest for a while, I think almost 10 years, is when then the Paul's fathers released me to go get my own doctorate. In that interim time, I had been working with runaway and homeless kids okay. in Boston. And this is in the late 70s, early 80s, before anyone knew about sexual abuse, anything. Right. And these kids were all, all these runaway kids on the streets of Boston were there 
involved in the sex industry and the drug trade, because to them, that was safer than being home, which is where the bulk of physical abuse and sexual abuse had taken place. And so I had horrified little baby priest. I contacted all these people. They have a huge medical community in, in Boston and in Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Medical School and all that. And I served for a while as a conduit between these kids and these people who were just beginning to study this whole issue of sexual and physical abuse of children. And I stayed involved in that really my whole ministry, my first 10 years. And then Father Joe Gallagher, who was the uh, president of Paul's Fathers there at the time said, well, if you're going to do this, you need to get your own credentials. You need to get your own degree. And so I did. Okay. If I could jump ahead a little bit with your background in psychology and in, in healthcare issues like that, mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about the impact of the pandemic on the spiritual health of uh, people that you minister to or that you've seen? You know, stress is bad for everybody. Right. Unless you're British. If you're from the UK <laughs> and you love stress, and you, they do bounce better under stress than any other time. I'm joking, really. But it's <laughs> stress is bad for everyone. And I think the, the COVID produced in several sorts of stress. One is it isolated people from friends. And from family, it isolated people from their jobs. Some people lost their jobs. A lot of people lost their jobs. Some people couldn't make house payments or rent payments. And there's that sort of stress. There was the stress of people trying to work at home. There was the stress of parents wondering whether every sneeze or every cough meant their kid was sick or they were sick or what was going to happen. And especially in the first two months of it, it was three months of it, really, where people are going to die. I mean, outside where I lived at 59th Street, there were at Mount Sinai Hospital, there were three white, big white trailer tractor trucks that were the temporary morgue. That was New York. Mount Sinai in New York, yeah. They couldn't have it. They couldn't do it. And I had COVID, and fortunately, you know, I had was taking oxygen and all the rest of it, but I was in. The doctor came over to see me and said, well, we'll keep you here until you have to go there, but mm-hmm. you just stay here as long as you can, because we don't, we mm-hmm. don't know how to treat this. So that was in the early days. It was, but as this stretched on and on, and people became more and more isolated, and that's, you know, that's not good for anyone. It stresses every weak link. It, it, when you're under stress, your immune system begins to fail. You become more prone, not just to COVID, but to other illnesses. You can have more than one illness at a time. You become separated from people. You can't see your mother, your father, your grandchildren. Your grandchildren can't see your grandparents. Kids who are social creatures can't see the child next door. And that left people all, we're social animals. We like to be with one another. It's not good, it says in the book of Genesis, for man to be alone. And it's not. And that accumulated stress was, it, it created difficulties in attention and in concentration, in mood, both with anxiety and with depression. It created difficulties. Oddly enough, you know, it was for people who had substance disorders and didn't have access to substances, that you had all these people 
in various stages of withdrawal that was not supervised and not attended to. And so that was that was very dangerous to their health and to the well-being of the people who were around them. People were also cut off from, they were cut off from church, you know, right. whether you're Catholic or whether you're Baptist or wherever you are, if you're Jewish or a Muslim, you religion is a, is a community experience. And people were cut off from those community experiences. None of us believe as well by ourselves as we believe together. And to be separated from all of that, that had a profound spiritual effect, I think, on people, no matter what their religious background was or what their religious belief was. I remember I was, got a text from Cardinal Cosper, who was very kind to me. He was in Rome and he said, you know, that first Easter after COVID. And he said, this is the first year in the history of Christendom that Mass was not celebrated in Rome. Wow. Public Mass was not celebrated in Rome. Not the persecutions of Diocletian. Right. None of those things. There were people would be in the catacombs or hiding out. He said, this is not during World War I or World War II. This was the first time that public mass was not celebrated on Easter Sunday in Rome. And that would also be true for Christmas. And that's, you know, that, wow, that was really, that was very stark. You may remember, I remember, in that first time when there was Pope Francis in an empty St. Yeah. Peter's Square. It was amazing. So yeah. I watched that. It was amazing. Right. I mean, Paul's fathers, thank God, at least provided some solace with all the Facebook and YouTube masses they put up online. I mean, it kept me going during that time that my wife and I were constantly tuning in to the, the Paulist masses. And sometimes we, it, we would take, we would do two a, a Sunday. We would do one in the morning and we do another one. We see somebody else we like sure. preaching. And mm-hmm. we all remember Father Andre. He put, put mm-hmm. <laughs> Father Rich or somebody like that. Right, uh, right, right. That helped, but you're right. It, it's not the same thing. It was still a very stressful time. Right. And that as that as people talk about long COVID, which is a real thing physically. Right. Right. And there's also a long COVID fallout spiritually, I think, for people where they've almost forgotten how to be together. Right. Forgotten how to gather together for Eucharist. Have as the people in exile during the time of Second Isaiah, wondering why did God allow all of this? And you know, here they were banished. Everybody was, everybody was in exile for a long period of time, and that exile not only do you have to endure it, not only does it take a great deal of energy to endure it, but you begin to wonder, you know, where is God in all of this? Right. And, and lack of ability to connect, to pray with one another, to be with one another, emphasizes that. If I can change our topic a little bit and bring us around to one of the reasons we're here today. You have recently published a book, Mercy Not Sacrifice, Lenten Daily Reflections. And let me just say this. I really love this book. Um, it, it's free. Yes, yes. I uh, loved it first. Yeah. <laughs> before you did. Yeah, I know. You stopped copying me. I love the yeah, better, better, better. Yeah. It's true. We have offline, the three of us have already raved about this book to each other. So it, why don't you tell us, please, what, the, what this book is all about, what you're doing in this book? I think as we look at Lent, Lent can very always is easily about 
mean? What am I giving up? What am I doing? What am I fasting? What am I making the stations of the cross? What am I blah, blah, blah? And what extra prayers am I saying? Right. All of these sort of things. One can become very self-focused, actually. Am I giving up Netflix or, or uh, whatever, you know? Uh, and that's really not what Lent is about. Lent is not about that. Lent is, if you're going to, Lent is a, a preparation to celebrate Easter. And, and it's to celebrate Holy Thursday, that time when we find the Lord's presence in his body and blood absolutely intertwined with service of others. Absolutely twine. You cannot have one and you can't without the other. We celebrate Good Friday where we just receive. We just, what do we do at the beginning of Good Friday? We just lay down flat on the ground and we just receive the mercy of God. The mercy of God when we are doing our worst. Us and our worst, loved and beloved by God at this moment. And then on Easter Sunday, when we think that our worst is all there is, we celebrate that truly love is all there is, and death cannot put it into love. We celebrate the risen Lord. So if you're going to prepare for something in sports or music or anything else, you want to prepare for what it is that you're going to do. And what you're going to do is celebrate those three days. And so how do you celebrate those three days? Well, how you celebrate those three days is immerse yourself in the mercy of God. Immerse yourself in God's mercy for me. How can I learn to be merciful to me? And then how can I be merciful to others? How can I realize that in the midst of whatever desert we find ourselves in, that the mercy of God is there present for us? And the only way we can do that is really to reflect on it and challenge ourselves to be, during Lent, to, to look at the mercy of God and those dimensions. God's mercy for me, how can I be merciful to me? Because, you know, we're very hard on ourselves, no matter what we think. And then how can we be merciful to other people? How I do that, I think, and maybe the best sentence in the book, if you will, I think, is Lent is love growing in two directions. It buries down, it goes down deep, digs down deep into our heart and into our soul. And in the Christian communion, that means looking at the Word of God and looking at how that Word of God influences me. And then that provides the nourishment, the roots, if you will, to as in a plant to that reaches out towards the sun, towards life, towards God, towards others. And it's, it, it goes in two directions. Lent is not a time of deprivation. It's a time of, it's a time of recommitting ourselves to the love that comes, that we celebrate at Easter. And that's really what we should be about. Thank you. And I know, you, I think you were referencing the initial prayer on the first page. Of- yeah. So we're recording this on the Friday after Ash Wednesday. Okay. And so I picked this section to read because it, what these are reflections for every day. And as Father Mark David tells us in the beginning of the book, uh, all these reflections begin with the scripture for the day. And a lot of them rely on the Hebrew scriptures. So as the first one does here today, Friday after Ash Wednesday. This is the fast I choose to loosen the bonds of injustice to untie the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke, 
to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, cover them and do not hide yourself from your own kin. Isaiah 58, 6-7. Reflection. One Linton Friday, I was invited by hymn-singing Methodist men to a breakfast of pancakes and bacon and eggs, biscuits and sausage gravy, with a vegetable omelet for their Catholic guest. Why do Catholics give up things for Lent? This Lent, I am giving up kale, announced the playful questioner. God will reward you with a heaven of endless, eternal acres of kale, I playfully replied. God isn't the least bit interested in kale or sausage biscuits and bacon. God is interested in what we give to those in need. God is interested in who we set free from what holds them down. Of all God is interested in, what I most fear is this. Quotation, do not hide yourself from your own kin. Close quotes. The poor, naked, homeless, oppressed, live at a distance. My own kin, well, there is no getting away from them. We don't get to choose our own kin. We don't get to choose who belongs to us. Human beings are biologically predisposed to leave home and strike out on our own. The drive for individualization, for mastery, to make our own friends and choose our own spouse, with whom we will make even more kin, this is the rhythm of life. It is not, however, an excuse to forever hide from our own kin, those to whom we belong and those we have chosen. I am not talking about abusive family members who do us harm. God's issue is everybody else from whom we grow apart, from whom we hide to avoid their needs. We hide because they are annoying. We hide to avoid our shame and their disapproval. We hide because we are busy and cannot be bothered. We hide because we have lives that do not include them. Whatever the reason, it is much easier to give up kale than to pay attention to kin to whom we were born or kin we have chosen. My greatest sins, sins that cannot now be undone, are those of hiding, ignoring family, replacing one friend with another, delighted with the distance I created between us. What if, when my eternity comes, it is filled with endless acres and acres of empty fields? Lent is not what we fast from. It is about who we include. That's strong stuff. <laughs> it's powerful, and it really redirects us back to where we need to be. Thank you so much for this whole yeah, that's book. That's great. And Very good. It really brings out the human quality. That's, I think that's what distinguished in my mind your book, Father Mark David. It was just, it just touches the fiber of our being. I, it gets us out of the kale factory into that human essential, I think, that hunger within us. I couldn't help, maybe I'm way off base here, but the thinking of when I started reading your book, an author from a while ago from the 70s, Michael Coyce, his book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tom and uh, I said that to each other the first time we talked about your book. <laughs> And I wasn't sure anybody but me and possibly you, because I know we're about the same age, that I thought, are they going to know what this is? Because when I read your book, I was, I just thought, wow, I haven't seen anything like this since Prayers by Michelle Coist. A big gap. And Tom said the same thing. 
That's yeah, it was, it was first. Yeah, okay. Because it brings us it's into that it. human drama, the human situation, which is a, a part of your preaching, the, the ability for mm-hmm. what, what I was able to find out uh, with some of your preaching, uh, you get beyond the, the fluffs. You get to the heart of the matter <laughs> where we want to deal with kale, but we don't want to deal with that interior change that comes along with the image of ashes and yeah. renewal and change. So it's a delight to have some real nourishment this Lenten season to to bring us deeper into our own spiritual journeys. And I don't know about Tom, but just so I'm clear on what I'm saying by comparing you to that book by Michelle Quoist. For me, at the time I read that, which would have been in the 70s, it opened up a concept of prayer that I had absolutely no idea of. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not, oh, I remember this thing he wrote or that thing. It was the whole thing. It was like, you can do this, huh? This is legit. You can talk to God like this. You can, I mean, he was beautiful. He was a wordsmith, of course. There was all kinds of stuff. It was very deep, like Tom was saying. But to me, the impact was, wow, this is, because it's not, well, contemplative prayer, and maybe God will give you the gift if you do this. We all pray, and we're all brought up with rote prayers, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, mm-hmm. which is good. You need mm-hmm. that. But here's a guy who's, like, showing you that your life can be the material of what you talk to God about. And that was like, wow. And that is the first thing that came to my Mm -hmm. mind as soon as I flipped through your book and then I read the first one. And the first thing that came to mind is this is like, it was the same experience. So it's really a beautiful book. Well, thank you. That's maybe the best compliment I've ever received. You remember that book? Oh, I do. I remember those books. I remember those books. And maybe one of the reasons why I use the Hebrew scriptures so much I mentioned I had Raymond Brown. I had good fortune of having Father Raymond Brown as my scripture teacher. And he said, well, the New Testament is written primarily in about a 40-year period of time where everything is upbeat. They've all met the risen Lord. They've just all converted, and they expect him to come next Thursday. So it's all pretty much an upbeat sort of thing. But he said, if you want to look at the real difficulties of what it means to be a human being in relationship to God. He said, look at the Hebrew scriptures, because over the few thousand years of the writing of the Hebrew scriptures, there's a lot of stuff that's there. And where do you find the stuff that's there? I think in that one, it was, and in all of these, I think I reflected part of my own reading of the Latin scriptures. And I would look for a word or a sentence or a phrase that hit me. And not exegeting the whole passage and not looking at and not trying to connect all three of them or those other sorts of things. But find one that touches you. And for me, at this point, it was hide from your own kin. And I thought, well, I, you know, let's just play with that for a little bit because there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of uncomfortable truth in that. Is that how you do it, Father Mark, David? Oh, yeah, you, find a, you find something that speaks to you, what you do in Lexio, and then just develop the meditation right. off of right. that? Yeah, and I would look for, and again, I wasn't, you know, after 40 some odd years of doing this, I don't really do the exegesis anymore. I kind of have that down, I think. But I would look for just a word or, or a phrase that would do it. On the Sunday ones, a little more, because Sunday is Sunday. It's a little bigger. It's a little bigger story. But I would look for a sentence, just a phrase, a word, and stop. When I got that, I would just stop there. That would, that's that. The mercy, not sacrifice, that comes from Hosea, title of the book. 
there you are. And okay, well, what does that mean? You know, and then to sit with that and say, well, if I'm going to write something, it should be about mercy and not sacrifice. We talk about sacrifice all the time. And, right. that, and there's a place for that. But it's okay, here's that. So let me just focus on this or this particular day. Well, with each of them, actually, I have to say, I look for one piece, one part. And a part that touches my life, either making me as uncomfortable as this one made me, or as I think about that, I mean, the story about, I remember that very vividly, actually, that Methodist men's breakfast. Oh, my God, did that place smell good? <laughs> and it, it had this little itty bitty, tiny, pitiful little omelet. God. Well, it was Lent. That's all you had. It, really. it was Lent. They were, they were having Methodist Lent, which is much better, I got to tell right. you. But, <laughs> Methodists are good people. You know, that good, mercy, they sing better hymns than anybody. Oh, they do. Right. That mercy, not sacrifice thing, though, uh, if we can get a little exegetical just for a moment, mm-hmm. aside from it's an interesting thing to put up against Lent, because Lent is traditionally, for most of us who are raised Catholic, about what are you going to give up, the whole disciplining, being able to say no to yourself, so you say yes to God, and that makes sense. It's, like you say, there's a place for that. But the mercy, not sacrifice, where Jesus tells the Pharisees to go find out what this means. And I thought that summed up the prophet's critique of the temple throughout yeah the Jewish scriptures, throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Take away your fast. I didn't ask you, to, you think I'm hungry? you got to give me a bowl to eat? Go feed the orphans. Go, you know, that, that whole prophetic thing, which Jesus was obviously, he was not a Levite, he was not in the temple. Jesus mm-hmm. was obviously mm-hmm. the prophet from Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And so this was his kind of take on things. And it's really a very deep criticism for all of us, especially us Catholics, I think, because we are very comfortable with the sacrificial stuff. So this is a real challenge, it seems to me, not just about Lent, but just about how we envision following Jesus in general. That is a real challenge that we're still waiting for the Holy Spirit to bring to the attention of the church. Are we really doing a lot of times what God wants, or are we doing what's easier? Because it's much easier to sacrifice something than it is to be merciful. Isn't that Pope Francis's call to the church? Ten years now. Yep. Ten years now, over and over again, in in so many different ways. That's the call of Pope Francis. Yeah. So a significant part of your ministry too, Father Mark David, with the whole idea of helping people recognize the presence of God. We were talking about the presence of God before you joined us about is, but it seems your ministry and even this book is getting into, not bringing the presence of God, the accompanying part, but helping people realize like where God is in your life. And how do you do that? What's uh, especially because we're trying to reach people who might have left the church. How do we reach them as far as today, the presence of God is coming to your life? How do you see that? Do you have a formula for that? Is it? I, uh, no, I, I think the formula is where are the difficult parts of people's lives? And as soon as you find the difficult part in people's lives, God is there. As soon as you do that, then it's my job to hunt around and look for God. I mean, because the presence of the Lord is there. Even if they don't see it, if I don't see it, I mean, here is this person struggling, carrying their cross. How much more do I want? You get to see people carry their cross all the time. In ministry, we have that. We have that awkward, awful privilege of being Simon watching Jesus carry his cross continually. And for us, you know, as soon as we find that spot, that's where we look. And that's where we can begin to find people, to then help people understand 
the presence of God that's within them. And, and that's where I look first. Now, there are other places that are happy places too, where you can look and see that, but they usually can pick that up on their own. Right. That's easy. <laughs> that's on their own. But how do you find the difficult part or the difficult things with that? I was talking to a group of eighth graders in our school and in Los Angeles yesterday, and we we're talking about stress and anxiety and COVID and what it was like. And there's this one kid so honestly said, I'm anxious all the time. I feel stressed all the time. I'm always worried about the future and blah, 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 what's going to happen. And I'm thinking to myself, and he's saying this out loud with a group of 40, 50 other kids. And I'm saying, what a brave boy you are. What a brave man. Here you are getting up every day with all this anxiety and putting one foot in front of the other and being able to say that out loud. Whoa, yeah. whoa, I don't know how old. I was before I could do that. That's incredible to be as strong as you are, to carry that burden every single day. That's spectacular. I don't want to, I wouldn't want to change places with you, but I've got to admire, I've got to admire you. And to be able to say it out loud, to be just truthful about it. When I said, when I was your age, I didn't want anyone to know anything bothered me. Sure, sure. Right. Father, what would you say, the publisher, Paulus Press, what's the state of Catholic publishing in the United States today? Is it strong? Is it not strong? I would say that we are publishing ourselves and my colleagues. I think of Liturgical Press, I think of Orbis, Ave Maria, OSV, others. I think we have, on the one hand, we're publishing some of the best material content we've published maybe ever. It's uh, soul-searching, it's timely, ranging from devotion to serious theology. And by and large, Catholic publishing is run by lay people. I Just to be really clear, that's probably why it's doing so well. But the difficult part is we've really suffered from a loss of bookstores. Right. Because people would go into a bookstore and browse, you're looking for this latest novel, and you might be Anders see something and, oh, I'll pick that up or I'll look at that. Catholic bookstores have all but, you know, have a vanished species. When I took over, when there were maybe a thousand of them now, there's probably just, you know, if there's a hundred of them, I would be amazed. Wow. There are not very many. And that's, so I think people don't know what's out there. I think by and large. And our biggest issue is what we call discoverability. How do we let people know the things that are there? Right. You know, when if you go to Amazon, you're not browsing on Amazon, you're looking for this book and you find this book and then they'll say, well, there's a couple other books like it, but you're not browsing like you normally would at a bookstore. So I think Catholic publish, all Catholic publishing in one sense is struggling in that regard is how to get the word out about what we have, about what's available, because each publisher has their own niche, if you will, but it's increasingly difficult to make available to people, to let people find out what it is that's available to them. Well, you know, you've got something for everybody. Anytime I've looked at the Paulus Press catalog, we've got kids to adults, devotion to mm -hmm. serious theology. Mm -hmm. So what would be Paulus Press's niche, since everybody has a niche? I thought you were nicheless. <laughs> well, we sneakily have, we work towards the intersection of faith and culture is really what we look at. 
we have all of our younger kids' books are all directed towards helping introduce kids to scripture. We publish Second Vatican Council is really what we publish. And our niche is how do we manage that? So kids don't buy books, adult, you know, grandparents and parents buy books. So how to introduce kids into the scripture, how to introduce kids into some basic human concepts that undergird. We tell stories about Muslim kids and Jewish kids and Christian kids getting on together, things like that. So we do those sorts of things. I think we will, we publish more ecumenically related materials and more interfaith related materials than most other presses do. We lose money on all of that, but that's part of our mission. That's part of what we do. That's part of that. But I would say now liturgical press does, boy, they publish the best stuff on liturgy out there. We have a couple of really good authors on, on liturgy. They all overlap a little bit. They tend to do worship things. If you get Give Us This Day, that's liturgical press publication. If you do, if you're looking for a liberation theology, Orbis is very strong in that. So that's what they do. So I think what we look on and we continue to do is now it's 50 years on later, 60 years on later from the council. What is it? What is this next level of the reception of the council mean for us? And so Pope Francis is taking us in the direction of synodality. And how is it that we re-envision the church in the way that the council did, but we haven't yet brought to fruition. So that's what we're looking at right now. Does anybody publish more books on deacons than you guys? No. I thought we should mention that up since there were... We should mention that, yes. No, we've... My predecessor, Larry Boat, Father Larry Boat, decided to do that and then got in touch with Bill Dightwick and... We made a huge decision to publish things in reference about deacons and that there's a huge need there. One of our, one of the biggest consumers of our Paulist biblical commentary are deacons. Who buy that and use that, somebody has that eight pound thing there. But deacons are among the biggest buyers and users of the Paulist biblical commentary. It's a great commentary. It's my go-to commentary now. Right. So we do a lot in terms of the area of deacons, and we'll continue to do things in the area of deacons. Well, they were a fruit of the Second Vatican Council. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's where it comes from. Yeah. Gentium, right? Yeah. And in, in many places in the world, I was stationed in Alaska for a while, and God knows, most a lot of the church in Alaska survives in the ministry of deacons. Because there's 20, 30 priests for Alaska, which is over half the size of the United States. <laughs> you know, that's so it's the Native American deacons who run that. Or in Brazil, the last big meeting on the on Brazil, they, the, a lot of the church in Brazil survives entirely on deacon. So that vocation is enormously important. You know, it's not that there are no vocations. People are looking at, they may not be the vocations that we're used to thinking about. But I think the Holy Spirit is sending vocations. Either that or he hasn't listened to us for the 50 years we've been pleading with him for vocations. It's just, right. how about this? No, I don't want that Holy Spirit. Give me what I right. I don't right. a Coke, not a Pepsi. Right. And the Spirit is, we're not going to outlast the Spirit. <laughs> I don't think so. so. Let me take you back to, to St. Paul in New York. There's a wonderful ministry there that I understand that you have something to do with out at St. Paul. 
It's a beautiful ministry. Did that start while you, did you have something to do with the beginning of that, the formation of that? No, it's Father Gil Martinez started the ministry at Albert St. Paul's, who's now pastor in Los Angeles. Okay, okay. But St. Paul's is in Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen is a place where there's a lot of, of LGBTQ people living there. We're surrounded by the arts. There's a lot of LGBTQ people living in the arts. And Gil, Father Gil, just sort of saw all those people that were there and decided that he was going to minister to them and minister to them in the sense that make sure that they knew this was their church. Right. And, and empower them for ministry. Yeah. It, so the huge part of the work of OSP is to engage in ministry to other LGBTQ folks. Okay. So it's a tremendously powerful ministry for that reason. Yeah, I, I, and it's really well known now in, around, in this area, in the New York metropolitan area, as a place that, that people can go to to feel welcome and to understand that they are loved. Which brings me to my last question. It may not be the last question of our session, but my last question is, we always ask our guests, what do they say to the person who's standing in the door of the church? Now, they may be looking to get out, or they may be looking to come in, and they can't make up their mind which way to go. Well, how do we, what do we say? What, what should we say? What's your name? In other words, just start to talk to them. Yeah, what's your name? Who are you? Right. My name is Mark David. What's your name? And where do you live? And what do you do? And what's life like? We're accompanying them on their journey. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So listeners, if, if you're having those questions, write to us and tell us what your name is. Yeah. What's your name? There was some interesting data done by our Protestant brothers and sisters about why people start church and leave church and all that. And it, it, intriguingly, one of the major reasons why people leave, stop going to church is that they move. Right. Okay. And then how do you get affiliated with another church? And if you go to and you visit another church, there's all these people who know each other talking to each other, but they're not talking to you. And so the and most people will visit as many as if they're really dedicated, if they don't give up right away, visit like six or seven churches. And the first church they'll stay at is the church where someone knows their name. Right, right. If I can say, Drew, how are you? Good to see you. Or I didn't see you last week. Or how's, the, how's it going? How's Mrs. Drew doing? So that's the important part. As Jesus says, I know mine and mine know me. Well, they can't be yours until you know them. Exactly. After, I find that all, this conversation happens at its most frequent in my life, in my ministry, outside the church, after Mass, and it's outside the church. It's not in that vestibule where some times the celebrant stops. I always walk outside and stand right off yep. the steps. And, yep. and every so often, somebody will come up to me and tell me, that was a beautiful mass, and I've been looking for a church because, as you say, we just moved here or we just moved to this location. And, of course, where I live, right outside of New York City, they have their options. They have their options of Catholic churches. Right. But we, I have to start with, and you're right, so right, Father. I have to start with, well, tell me, what are you looking for? What is it you want? So We just call people by name. Right. 
But so what's the first thing? Let yourself be guided by them. I thought it was great what you said, Father, that just a minute ago about we're accompanying them on their journey. Yeah. Emphasis on the their. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is revolutionary if we can get that idea into the heads of people that their journey is between them and God, and that is legitimate. And you are there to accompany them, to help them, but not to say, no, 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 no. you got to come my way. you got to do it this way. you got to do it, which, of course, turns people off. Any adult is going to, you know, most kids too. So I don't know who that works for, but we seem to be stuck in that. But I thought that was a great insight you just had, that we accompany them on their journey. Well, well if I can reiterate. That's one a great thing. title of a book, by the way. Yeah, huh? Write it, Dennis. Yeah, right. Well, uh, well, let me just reiterate what I read from before Friday after Ash Wednesday from Father <laughs> Mark David Janice's book. It's a Paulus Press book, one more time. God isn't the least bit interested in kale or sausage biscuits and bacon. God is interested in what we give to those in need. Yeah. So let me just say if you're interested in Father Mark David's book, and if you're interested in all the other find books Paulus Press publishes, visit paulispress.com. You'll be able to hunt around and look at it and browse. It's unbelievable. Even though it's not a bookstore, you can browse on their website. It's unbelievable the range of stuff they have. There is something there. If you go to Paulus Press, I will guarantee you find something that you'll go, ooh, that's interesting. And I don't even know who you are listening, but they've got everything for everybody. It's really quite quite a breadth and depth of interests and approaches. It's really well done. And I just want to say this book again, Mercy Not Sacrifice by Mark David Janis, that this is a great book. This is, I want to make sure people understand, this is one book to rule them all. This is not, okay, this year of Lent, and I'll be selling you one next year. This covers all three cycles of Lent. So this is your Lenten book forever. So that's quite a deal. You could take one day and one five minutes a day in the morning with a cup of coffee and start your day with some real depth. So Mercy Not Sacrifice, Mark David Janis, Paulus Press, get them while they're hot. And this also gets the Deacon Dolan money back guarantee. If you don't like this book, you send it to me and I will give you your money back and give it to someone who can appreciate it. But this is a wonderful thing. And I thank you, Father. And, Thank you. Thank and Deacon Dolan, D-O-L-A-N. That's right. Don't Drew's cheap. Not Drew's not going to give you your money back. <laughs> I am. I will give you your money back if you don't like this book, because I know a lot of people I would give this to that they would be very happy. Father, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful, wonderful session that we've been spending with you, and it's been very edifying for me personally. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very Thanks. much. Thanks, Father Mark. Bye-bye. God bless. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is Deacon's Pod, again with an S, Deacon's, at Paulist.org. That's P A U L I S T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. 
On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.